Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to explore this important discussion today. Um, As we have this discussion today, I want to um, just remind everyone that so much of the work that we discuss on this um, program is centered around historical trauma and how history shapes who we are. And so this conversation is extremely relevant um, as we are going to explore today, what does it mean to parent with ACEs or um, how do we parent as traumatized people and um, really hopefully uh, prevent what we would call intergenerational transmission through our parenting. And so um, as usual, I have my host, Matthew Portell with me today. And our guest today is Candace Valenzuela, and she is going to um, do a deep dive really into her personal experiences. And if you remember, she is a return guest. Um, She has been on here before, one of our most popular episodes, actually, um, when she came in to talk with us about self-care, collective care, and um, minority mental health. And so I will hand it over to you, Matthew. I would say, um, as a co-host, Candice by far has been one of my favorite uh, people to talk to because um, authenticity has been from the very beginning. And I appreciate that of just explaining, hey, this is who I am. This is where I am. And I'm going to roll with it. So let let me tell you a little bit more about Candice because... uh, I I know this is going to be an amazing conversation. Candace is a parent, a pet owner, a friend, a survivor, a geek. I would say fellow geek. I think I identify that as well. And a nature lover. They have learned that no professional titles will ever reflect all of who they are or their worth. I'm going to read that again because I think most of us need to understand this. They have learned that no professional titles will ever reflect all of who they are or their worth. Oh, I love that. Um, They strive to be a human before they strive to be a worker. They identify as black, indigenous, queer, and working class allied. Professionally, they have been working at the crossroads of education, justice, and community healing for nearly 18 years. They have extensive experience in mindfulness, trauma-informed care, anti-oppressive practices, cultural competency, liberatory education, and youth empowerment. If you want to know their titles, they hold a BA in Humanities, an MA in East-West Psychology, a 200-hour Certificate of Mindful Yoga through the Nairoga Institute, and in May of 2022, they earned their counseling, uh, MA in Counseling Psychology. So welcome, Candice. I know uh, those titles don't define you, but you define you. So tell us a little bit more about uh, who you are. Thank you so much, uh, both of you, for the very warm welcome. It's lovely to be back. Um, You know, I think in the context of this conversation, I want to situate um, a bit more of my um, upbringing and the context for the context within which I actually earned those degrees and became the person that I am today. And hopefully that will also 
continue to become clear throughout the episode. But um, I have, um, I believe, a somewhat radical take when it comes to trauma. Um, I am in full support of pushing against pathology. I, and for many people, that looks like even moving away from the word, but what's different is I actually embrace it. Um, I find it to be a very important word um, rooted in lots of history and lots of, um, of knowledge and really important learnings about the human body um, through time. And so with that, I actually identify as a traumatized person. And I know that that is something that is we often see being pushed against in social media, like this idea of like not identifying with our trauma. Um, and hopefully, you know, why I identify this way will become more clear through the conversation. Um, but first and foremost, it's rooted in my lived experience. Um, I was orphaned at a very young age. Um, I lost both of my parents by the age of five, and I am actually a former foster youth myself. So my early, um, without going into details, you can imagine the instability, the, um, the lack of safety, and therefore, um, the context, there is no way of getting to know me and understanding who I am um, without understanding trauma at the most uh, raw levels, because my brain and body developed in the context of trauma. And in many ways, my life has been a reckoning and a grappling of, with that. And um, uh, there were, um, beyond that context, there were also very um, dynamic and layered uh, experience of traumatization beyond just my um, my family of origin. I grew up in a historically Black neighborhood in Los Angeles that was incredibly poor. And amongst the uh, poor people, we were the poor people. <laughs> so being the poor people within the poor people is a real thing. <laughs> uh, my best friends growing up were refugees and other um traumatized folks. So those are my best friends and my loved ones and the ways that we, um, so much of my resilience in terms of being able to um, cope and eventually get to safer horizons were about utilizing um, the community cultural wealth of the indigenous and collectivist communities that I grew up within. So we didn't have money and there was a lot of violence that layered on top, you know, social violence histories of violence, but then we also had collectivism where we, we pulled resources and there was a lot of love that also, that didn't come from my family and didn't even come from extended family because I didn't have that. But it actually came from just the people I was living alongside, um, <clears throat> which is a really powerful story that I also want to tell one day. And then originally there was this story that I picked up around healing, that there was this idea that we were going to somehow like heal our, heal myself out of the trauma. Right. Well, first I had to even understand what trauma was and how it was showing up for me or that I even needed healing and that healing was more than just going to college and getting the degrees. And that's why that's a part of my bio is because that really didn't mean much for me. It gave me some relative safety uh, or access to resources. But with the level of trauma that I entered my life, I was deeply impacted and deeply fractured um, even after graduating college. And college was incredibly challenging for me. I had did not have the resources to 
Um, I, I got through it by the skin of my teeth, and I mean that quite literally. Um, there are other factors to take into account, which we know that when people have these early experiences of trauma in the ways it affects behavior and the brain, we also become more vulnerable to future traumatization. And that has been why I identify as a traumatized person, because there's never a day in which I am not Black in America facing the um, race uh, uh, racialized trauma of being Black. There is never a day that I'm not an Indigenous person living on stolen land and everything that that comes with. Um, there is not a day that I am a person in a body assigned female at birth and everything that comes with that. In addition to, you don't just lose your parents once. You know, that's another myth around grief and loss so that you like this loss happened and it's in the past. You live every day without those resources of support and it continues to have impact. So I'm coping and surviving as best I can in this body with an experience of continued um, vulnerability to marginalization through social systems with a decreased access to resources um, because I do not have, I live my whole life without extended family. And often as being many of us who can relate to this, we'll also understand the story of when things do happen within this family context, you are the person, right? Growing up to become the person who, you know, in my family, I'm starting to recognize that the role of like matriarch and, and so on is actually coming into my lap um, simply because I've been the one to find my way into these, into these radical resources. And so traumatization is a part of my everyday life and my approach to healing has nothing to do with not being traumatized. I don't think that's possible. And that's not a hopeless thing for me. And in any way, it is actually um, a befriending. So my approach is how do I befriend this woundedness? How do I befriend what's here? And that has brought such beauty, such permission, and such power, quite honestly. Um, and it's a thread that I must always remain connected to as long as soon as I start to go into the uh, the dominant ideology around things. It just doesn't work for me and I become ill. And so I like to say that the, even the reason why I'm able to be here with you in the capacity that I am and speak these words and even be alive because my my I have faced um, near death multiple times in my life for various reasons is in my commitment to befriending uh, the wound and befriending my own body and befriending my own history. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that, Candace. Um, it it really, it, you know, ties well with the conversation today that in order for us to parent with um, our own trauma history, our own adversity, our own experiences, we first have to just understand that we have trauma, that, that we have a past that um, shapes who we are and that shapes who we are as a parent. And that if we don't recognize that trauma, don't embrace it, don't understand it, then likely we will pass that trauma through to the next generation through our parenting practices and the environments that we create for our children. And so I think, um, you know, you know, let's first kind of define what is intergenerational trauma and how it connects to, you know, kind of this topic today, parenting with ACEs, parenting with trauma. And so we have, um, you know, in the 1960s, there were um, 
experiments and studies that were done, especially around um, Holocaust survivors. There was a flood of, of information that came after the Holocaust and intergenerational transmission is, is one of them. They began to study children of Holocaust survivors. And this was our first academic understanding that trauma in one person's lifetime can be transmitted to their children and, or the children around them through um, many mechanisms. Um, obviously there's parenting practices, right? So the way in which you raise your child, if you are um, a, a parent that's more physical, that's, that spanks or um, that yells, um, but then there's also the environment that you raise your child in. So the other adults that your child may be exposed to um, and learns how to act socially in the world based on, you know, social um, learning or you know, how they, um, the behaviors that they're modeled for them. Uh, and then, of course, we have, you know, all the different ways that people cope with stressful situations. So as people encounter trauma, be it racial or collective like COVID or um, an incident, an, an, a direct incident in their neighborhood, maybe they um, experienced um, violence as an individual, that then leads to different um, coping um, strategies that people employ. And those coping strategies can then also be passed along to children and impact the larger society. That coping may be um, the use of alcohol and substances. It may be emotional isolation. Uh, it may be anger and aggression. Um, and so there are many mechanisms to how trauma is passed on to future generations. Um, our first academic understanding of this was from uh, our studies of um, those who survived the Holocaust. But let's be very clear. Um, obviously, we have plenty of um, a history with this that um, dates back to uh, chattel slavery and the genocide and land theft of indigenous peoples. And so we have many, um, many different ways of seeing how trauma passes through generations and how um, events of the past still impact us today. And then we really begin to understand that one of the most significant avenues for how trauma is passed on through generations is parenting one of the most significant avenues. Um, the larger society does play a part. I don't, I don't want to rule that out. Our systems are at play. But when it comes to the child's perspective, um, they are highly modeling, highly um, connected to, or you know, unfortunately, sometimes disconnected from their parent. And parenting is extremely important. And so as we talk about um, intergenerational transmission, um, yes, genetics, yes, the larger society, yes, racism, yes, all the systemic issues, but parenting is crucial. And so um, as we think about what it means for intergenerational transmission of, of trauma to occur, uh, it's largely driven by survival-based parenting. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about historical trauma because it is a type of intergenerational transmission. Um, historical trauma is when you have intergenerational transmission that's really tied to a specific group. And that group may be um, defined by many, many different things. So 
I want to be clear that when we talk about historical trauma, we are not talking about race. We're talking about environments and conditions that specific people endure. And so they are, because we um, live in a white supremacist society, they are often um, connected to race. But there's others. There's religion. There's nationality. There's ethnicity. Um, and and there's also uh, conditions like war. Uh, and so these events impact groups of people and then can become historical trauma passed along through generations. And the reason why this happens is because trauma is um, substantially impacted, right? We, we very clearly know that trauma impacts the way that our, our bodies and brains operate um, and develop. And so if we have widespread trauma that impacts a certain group, it's going to impact the way that they raise their children, the way that they cook their food. It's going to impact all aspects of their culture. And then when we get to modern day, we think um, those who have a historical, uh, historically traumatic background, we believe that the issues that they're facing are cultural when they're actually based in the trauma that they have experienced as a group historically. Um, and there's a lot to tease apart there. And that's why parenting is also one of the um, most impactful ways to prevent um, kind of the ongoing trauma that is a thread that's intergenerational based on lots of different issues, based on gender, race, um, socioeconomic status, um, religion. And so this is an extremely important topic that is um, very much rooted in how our society operates and also how our society sees children. Um, we, you know, we've talked before, and I know me and Matthew have had a couple of extensive conversations about childism um, on, on this um, podcast. So when we think about how we view children and see children in our society and all of the things that go along with raising children um, and how vulnerable children are in our society, it is largely due to childism the belief that children are less than because they are young and dependent on us. Um, the belief that they um, should, you know, be seen and not heard, um, that they shouldn't talk back, um, and that their feelings, um, thoughts, emotions do not matter. Uh, and so this is a larger societal issue as well when we think of it from that standpoint. Um, as we you know, have parents who may believe that this is the case, but also have parents who have experienced it themselves as children. And when they become parents, they are ill-equipped to um, deal with parenting in a modern age um, as our children are becoming more vocal and more into themselves. And, um, and what does it mean to navigate this modern age with kind of this historical perspective on children um, when they talk back, when they stand up for themselves, when they assert um, themselves, when they have agency and how that triggers us uh, as parents. I say us because I am a parent and Matthew is also a parent. Um, and so this this conversation is extremely important. Matthew, I know that, you know, we've talked before about our parenting, um, our parenting journey. Um, what is your perspective on um, kind of, you know, intergenerational transmission from your standpoint, from your actual experiences? Yeah, you know, I mean, it, uh, it's so interesting because before this podcast, um, 
I hadn't really dug into a lot of these ideas, right? And I think when when we originally talked about intergenerational transmission, if you remember, I actually went and did my genealogy because um, and, and it brought a lot to light, right? Personally, and your reflection of what how you didn't have access to genealogy due to your um, to due to the genealogy you had. But it it this time has put me into reflection of. With me, I was a spare the rod, spoil the child. I drew. I grew up in a evangelical home where um, the Bible was used. It was weaponized, right, um, to dehumanize kids. The way that I, I remember not just in in my family, but in the community I lived, um, the way I was treated by educators, uh, the way I was treated by churchgoers, the way I was treated by elders. I remember feeling less than. Um, I remember the feeling of not having a voice. Uh, when thinking something was wrong and even what I was being taught, um, questioning things I was being taught and being chastised for asking questions. Um, and that happened at home, that happened at church, it happened um, in so many places. And even as a child, um, remember the shame that I felt, uh, the way that it that I was being addressed and when I made a mistake. Um, and then now that I have my own child, right, and he he is a very spirited child like me, which I appreciate, and finding myself getting into that space of wanting to react the way that I was parented, as opposed to parenting the way that I know I should, uh, when he expresses himself, which you're making me really angry, right? That's what we want our kids to do. We want them to express themselves, say what it is. Or I can't, I stop talking to me right now. That is self-advocacy, right? That he, it's too much, it's overload. And man, do, is it easily triggered for us to go back to parent the way we were parented. So I think just one generation from my parents, right? I mean, just this single and how I literally as a parent try to fight every day, not to necessarily, and my, I didn't live in a, extremely traumatizing home to the extreme sense. I think we've, I had a lot of things that occur, right? But not in the extreme sense. Uh, but still those little pieces really do define us as people and human. And so that's how I see it in my own experience. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I think, um, you know, I think when we talk about trauma, you know, big T or little T, um, kind of takes away because I think even when we have smaller, you know, kind of ongoing, um, essentially microaggressions towards children, right? They add up. The The research is very clear that um, even those smaller, you know, feelings of not being heard or not being worthy or shame and guilt, especially in formative years, really has impact. It It is greatly connected to mental health outcomes. It is greatly direct uh, connected to depression and anxiety and um, ADHD and um, obsessive compulsive um, um, disorders and issues. So uh, I think I don't want to minimize that at all. Um, so yes, yeah. Um, Candice, you know, before we, it's almost time for us to take a break, but before we go to a break, I want to give some space for you to kind of talk about, you know, your feelings about, you know, how you were treated as a child along the lines of childism. Did you feel seen? Did you feel heard? 
Um, and then when we come back from the break, we'll jump into what are the solutions? What does it look like to address this in a real way and within parenting? Thank you. Um, it, it's a bit hard to answer answer that question um, because my upbringing is so um, non-normative. There, there was not a single parenting uh, figure. Um, I was in direct contact as a child with our social welfare system. And so in many ways, I feel like a lot of my attachment, um, wounding and development is actually in relationship to society itself. So there was a, um, a disruption in my attachment to other um, authority figures, you know, for sure. Um, um, but, but beyond that, um, I have a very systemic view around all of this. And even in the conversation of childism, I would actually um, take that a step um, further and say that for me, the root is actually colonization. Because prior to colonization, we actually see very different um, approaches to parenting, childhood, um, and power in the community. And I see childism as part of um, a complex set of inheritances that we have actually received from the colonization, which I see as a historical um, wounding, which for me would explain why, um, although we have different experiences of marginalization, I would argue that all of us are actually um, uh, living in the impacts of what it means to live in a colonial society, regardless of whether we have privilege or disprivileges in that. that we sh I think we share a colonial wound that has different um, shades of trauma. The, the, the trauma has different aspects, but it, it is absolutely, and even when you talk about religion and all of that is deeply tied to that history of of, of colonization. So for me, that is how I would um, bring that in my work. And, um, and I would just say that um, that deeply impacted, you know, my development um, and the struggle to, to, to attach. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, when you say disconnected from society as a whole, that's, that is exactly kind of the outcome of historical trauma and definitely um most of our historical trauma stems from colonization. Um, we are going to take a break and then we'll come back and we'll continue this conversation um, around kind of the societal impact, but then we'll also kind of get to what does that look like when, um, as a parent, when you're one-on-one -on -one with your child, what can we do to prevent this cycle of trauma um, from going into future generations? We'll be right back after the break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This podcast is supported by St. David's Foundation, a community-focused and equity-driven organization supporting health and well-being in Central Texas. To learn more about St. David's Foundation, visit www.stdavidsfoundation.org. This episode is supported by the National Training and Technical Assistance Center for Child, Youth, and Family Mental Health. NTTAC is here to help children and their families thrive. 
Whether you're a peer support specialist, social worker, teacher, or another professional, we're here to help you support the mental well-being of youth and families. Picture this journey. A young person, once lost and struggling, finding their path to happiness and stability with your guidance and our resources. NTTAC is your partner every step of the way. Join us for workshops, virtual community gatherings, and personalized help from our team of experts, all at no cost to you. Check out our website at nttacmentalhealth.org to see what we offer. Let's create a brighter future for youth and families together. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. We are back continuing our conversation um, focused on parenting with ACEs. We have our guest, uh, Candice Valenzuela, and we are really um, digging into how parenting is a tool. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes it's a tool to continue um, trauma through intergenerational transmission, but also can be a tool to heal um, um, trauma through generations. And so in the first um, half, we really kind of talked about what is intergenerational historical trauma. And um, we ended really focusing on how much um, a kind of our modern world and um, um, the impact of colonization has um, negatively uh, impacted parenting and what that means. Uh, and I think that's a good uh, topic to start on. And what can we as parents do to address that? And I, Candace, I, I definitely want to hear about your personal experience and how you do that um, within um, your role as caregiver and parent. Um, and then um, we'll kind of look to, you know, let our audience know what they can do and what that looks like in real life. Thank you. Um, I just want to preface first that this is a tremendous question. Um, it, you know, it, it's sort of the uh, kind of question where it's, um, you know, how do I tell not only my life story, but how that arises in the context of like my lineage, you know, and my people on the planet. So uh, I just want to name that I am, I am uh, definitely struggling to find a starting point. Um, one idea that I came across recently that was incredible for me is this idea of a transitional character that um, and people often call this more as a cycle breaker. Um, but I love this terminology for some reason, transitional character just really grabbed me because 
it, it really called into my own body this idea that like because of that person because of that one person every generation that that proceeds not just that your child but the way that your child raises their children is also going to be different and and those people that walk the earth are going to interact and live on that earth in a different way because of that character. Um, and so that was deeply moving for me in the context of all of the wonderful history you've provided. I really enjoyed how you framed this. Um, and I loved this, this pivot into parenting because I think that is where we have some degree of agency. And it really varies person to person, depending on our social context, absolutely, it's going to be harder if you're the more degrees of like um, active traumatization you're under, there's going to be a limit to what you can actually access through your body, not only in material resources, but like through your own activation. Um, but it's still a place of agency and power. And I've seen not only in myself, but like in my siblings, you know, this commitment to say, and I think it often comes from this just really pure place where when you, many people can remember when you were children and you had that experience where you felt shamed and you felt what you felt and you said, I'm never going to do that to my own kids. I, I meet so many people and they and we all had that thought. And then there is a, a vast ocean <laughs> between the purity of that thought and the ability to enact it. And that has been an ongoing journey. But I would say that for me... Um, disrupting that survival-based parenting, I take it on as my most important job on the planet. That is the degree of seriousness with which I hold this. It, um, it takes precedence over anything else in my life with the exception of my own health and well-being, but I see those things as being, you know, inextricable, actually. Um, and because of the histories that I shared earlier, um, I, I, I quickly jotted down kind of three areas that I think about this in. Um, one is in the area of attachment. And I think I would encourage folks, if you don't have a basis in understanding um, the, the paradigm of, of attachment in, the, in a parental um, relationship, like go do your due diligence. Because <laughs> I think for me, it opened a lot of windows for me where like, we can go through um, phases of survival. I think about them in my life, like physical safety, uh, material access, and even a degree of healing, you know, through therapy and, and some easing of those, like the loudness of the wounds. But it's really in our attachment, in the way we connect with others, that I think that trauma becomes the most apparent. And how someone like me who, you know, I described the history of trauma, but I didn't describe to you how rigorous and vivid my healing has also been alongside of it i have been absolutely committed at every point in my life at this point we're going into my 10th year of therapy with you know three different practitioners and just a continuous commitment including traditional uh, methods of healing and west african indigenous and uh, north american indigenous healing and how someone like me who could commit to all of that and then in the space of becoming a parent, I'm telling y'all, just struggle, just struggle, struggle, struggle. And it was such a, um, such a, a light um, into my own body and my own life to think, wow, all this time, you know, that healing absolutely mattered. But 
um, it's really in the context of the way that I relate to other humans and especially my own child. And I would even add anyone who has less power than us. Because I think it, I think of it around dynamics of power where um, the true test and the true limits of our healing comes to bear. You know, when we feel powerful, when we feel powerless, um, there are ways that um, our ch children are going to mirror back to us our inner states in ways that no other dynamic will do. We this can ha this happens in our partner dynamics as well. I would say like our relational partner dynamics with significant others for sure. But children do it in a very specific way because I think they're mirroring not only um, so children and in, in terms of like I can't give an overview of attachment theory, but one of the elements I always think about is the ways that. Um, Children depend on us for all of their needs. It's a complete dependence. And so um, because they depend on us so fully and completely and their psyches and their cellular and everything from the cellular level, you know, develops in relationship to us, um, they are, they have, children have evolved to um, deeply uh, read and respond to the state of the parent. Because their entire uh, safety is, I mean, it's for survival. It's a survival strategy, you know. So this idea, um, once it clicked in my mind, has been really helpful, is that um, my child is not just um, being raised by me. They are surviving me. And so that, that in and of itself has been a, a strong paradigm for me. It's like my child is surviving me. So what am I... Um, putting forth for them to survive. So along that lines, that means that they are like deeply cued into our inner states. And if we have histories of trauma, coping often involved disconnecting from our inner states in some way or another, every single trauma mechanism pretty much um, involves some level of like needing to switch off an inner state to survive. So just imagine the paradigm of now you have this little person who's just following you around all day, mirroring to you things that you've lived your whole life trying not to see. So it's a setup for the most extreme kind of triggering. And if we are not um, fully resourced in the limits of resources that we have in our context, we are absolutely going to reach for the coping strategy and it, that we used to use. And it doesn't mean we're bad people. It doesn't mean we're flawed. It doesn't even mean we're actually messing it up. It just means that I am possibly being triggered to a level in this moment that I've never dealt with before. And that means I am also doubly vulnerable to reaching for a harmful coping mechanism. In the most extreme sense, it can look like abuse. But in my sense, someone who's done a lot of healing work, there is no moment in which I'm actually going to like, you know, harm my child in a way that's perceptible to others. But emotionally, absolutely. Emotionally disconnecting, becoming avoidant, becoming dismissive. The things that through childism, we are told are okay and normative. And so that's what I saw coming up for me. I wasn't really at risk of like hitting my child or doing these things. But she, once she hit an age of like greater autonomy, I saw how difficult that was for me to cope with. I was struggling to cope with her needs for autonomy and her behaviors. And then I became a person that was much harder for her to survive. And we started to lock into some toxic dynamics that were really confusing given like the social mobility I had gained given that like you know my child has so much safety that I never had access to 
And this can be really confusing where I'd be like, why is my child struggling so much when I've literally created such a container that like I never had? And the answer to that, to that question is because my actual understandings of what she needed were deeply compromised. I didn't have a full sense of what a whole person needs because I never got it. And even within my um, healing journey, um, that was still in the context of what I didn't have. So she has become this, so my child has become this radical mirror of like, what is the fullness? What if I stop thinking about um, what's good enough for her and just drop that completely? Because that was, that had me in a chokehold, y'all. What's good enough? You know, you got the lights on, you got, so what? So do dogs, like, let it go. All right, not what's good enough. But what's bounteous, what's joyful, what's abundant, what's flourishing enough? And there are ways that I do that. And for me, um, that is the, the focus is like healing my own attachment, wounding um, through my love of adult relationships in therapy. And also um, for me, that is best characterized as a deep journey of reparenting. And reparenting alongside her, is, and it's a complete reversal of the power dynamic. I am not the authority. Actually, she is the authority in her experience and in her life, and she's my teacher. And there's ways I do that. Obviously, she has to have an appropriate level of like safety, and I'm not talking about reversing the roles, but in terms of um, whose experience gets the most space, um, it's hers. And I see that I've come to realize that like all the social justice work I was doing for decades and my drive to try and change the world, if it took me away from being present for my child and being able to be not just physically present, but emotionally connected and joined with how she was feeling on a day-to-day -day basis, it was a distraction. Because where I have the most power and this is a good one for all of us activists out there because we think we're trying to change the world. And those things are important. There are things in the world we absolutely must stand up to. But if we do them at the expense of crushing our own child and transmitting on, you just poisoned the water. You just pooped in the water. Because your greatest power is actually to disrupt that transmission. And that is, a, is the single most way I believe we change the world. And everything else can be, we can, if I can bring my child to the march, if I can include her, then we're there. But her well-being is is front and center. And for one last thing I want to say is all that is also housed within a cultural lens. So if the site of the historical trauma is the loss of cult land and culture and um, the disruption of relationship, the cultural relationships and collectivism, that is also centered in my parenting. So I don't only foster the attachment between my child and myself and, and reparent myself in that journey. I also do a lot of intentional um, working of fostering her, uh, her healthy attachment to the world itself. And I have particular ways that I do that. So that is, a, I would say, maybe a little bit of a different or additional lens than what you get in a lot of parenting books out there. And I'm going to tell y'all right now, I'm, I'm planning and hoping, I think a parenting book is actually going to be my first book. <laughs> so I'm working on that. Pray for me, give your information for that. But um, I intentionally actually cultivate my child's um, attachment um, to 
the living world th- th- with me, with our relationship as the beast. Yeah, I, I, all of this resonates with me, especially the, you know, when we talk about a transitional character, um, it's, you know, I, I feel that for myself and as I make decisions in my life to counteract the things that I experienced as a child that I thought, you know, what would, what would it be like if I had a world? What would, what would little Ingrid be like if she didn't have X, Y, Z and that I want that for my children? Um, and this is in no way a critique on my, my mother. I was, um, she was a single mother. So it's not a critique on her, but I just know she was doing the best that she can. But what does it mean for me to be whole? And that really connected with me because I feel like, you know, just from that academic space, when we talk about intergenerational and historical trauma, um, people with that background often go to kind of these very clear physical things that a child needs, right? Lights on, food, um, shelter, right? And they're like, listen, when I was a child, I didn't have X, Y, and Z. We had times with the lights off. We had times where, you know, we were sleeping on the floor or whatever that manifestation looks like when it comes to poverty. So it's not not just racial trauma, but also intergenerational poverty um, and um, historical trauma where you say, you know, this is this is what we need. This is what we didn't have. And then you get to that point and you're like, oh, there's also this whole other dynamic that I am just forgetting, this emotional connectedness that also matters, not just also matters, but matters even more. Well, I can I can say that um, metaphorically, there's usually a congregation and a choir. Um, I was sitting into the congregation, Candice. Um, it, I feel emotional about it, to be quite honest, because um, I spent 15 years in public ed and and missed a lot of my own child's experience. And mm. um, when I came to Paces, it was for the first time I got to sit um, in my driveway waiting on a bus with my child. And Ingrid and I have talked about this. I cherish those moments, every single one that I get. And what you said about shifting the paradigm of of that transitional person i mean it hit me so hard candace in that we're driven by this capitalistic idea that we have to work and we have to do and yet we we observe cultures and i've observed culture and community in my work uh especially with those from and refugees and watch the happiness that their community had and thought that's the pieces and it goes back to what you said before of that indigenous community and culture. And and to me, it goes back to the anthropological question of what is civilized. And I think we've gone so far from being civilized. We're so uncivilized by becoming civilized that we've lost this sense of just connectedness community uh, for each other. And all of that is in my brain (laughs) of listening to what you said, because uh, I talked to Ingrid, you know, I've, professionally we're making decisions and and I'm like I can't go back to being in a school right now and it isn't because I don't have the passion and love it's because I don't want to miss out on going to my child's sporting events I don't want to miss out on standing in front of the house with them uh, when the bus shows up mm. uh, when he needs somebody to come to school I can be there um it, it just man you just you hit me right in the chest and and I you know we believe in Things happen for a great reason. And your conversation today happened for me for a very point.
poignant, amazing reason. Um, but I just wanted to share that with you that, man, it's, we got to get back to our roots. Um, and when I say ours, I mean, people are our, our, our basic roots of connectivity and community of each other. Because uh, we're oh, losing absolutely. being pulled out drastically um, absolutely. and purposefully. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I, I feel really touched by what you shared as well, like so, so much. And I, um, there's so many stories I want to tell, but can't. And I, I will just share that in, you know, 2015, actually, right before I can see my daughter, I went to Oaxaca to um, briefly study with an indigenous elder from the Zapotec tribe there. And um, she, someone asked her, you know, if there was one thing that you wanted us as like USians to do, to learn and, and shift, to heal, what would it be? And that was actually what she said. She said, I, I want you to get to know your neighbors again. I want you to remember what it means to be human again, to be connected. Um, and that's such a guide that became a guide in my healing and has been a homecoming um, with my child. And I actually wanted to kind of add to what you were sharing, um, Ingrid, around like sometimes the, the limits of focusing on material access. You know, the way I've shifted that in my mind is um, and when we understand the research of like the evolutionary um, nature of how we evolve in our biology and our in our um, minds and, and in our nervous systems, I began to realize that what traumatized me um, wasn't actually the lack of food or money or it, that impacts you, but it was actually the loss of relatedness that happened in that. And I think that shift can also be really helpful for parents too to think less around like okay did you have the lights on or did you have the latest shoes but actually like what happened to you around those things and that'll tell a lot even how people who grew up in like for example middle class context can also be very traumatized because there was a loss of relatedness around the things that they had access to that probably tells a story about what happened to their family before and how they got to the money that they had, right? And so I loved the framing around like, how does the history show up in the present? And that's sort of my day-to-day, um, day-to-day, uh, day-to-day practice of, you know, um, and I think of it, there's a, there's a framework that I use. Um, and it's also why I'm reluctant to say like, here's this thing everyone needs to do because we come from different histories and different lineages that are interconnected, but they are also nuanced and unique. So what would it be like to embrace, to, to remember there's so much forced forgetting in our culture that it's also an outcome of colonialism. Colonialism relies on forced forgetting. Um, there's terms such as historical amnesia, historical narcissism that speak to this. But um, for me, what roots me with my child is this idea that I am parenting my own inner child at each age that I am parenting her. So sometimes we have ideas of inner children that are like static, like, oh, this inner child. But no, no, no. <laughs> you have ages that you progress through, and there were things that happened through all of those ages. And so in my mind, I have two children, not one. And that is an anchor for me. I have the child that lives inside of me who had such a severe limitation to what they were able to receive. And, and, and it's my ability to give them what they need in the present moment is 100% linked to my ability to be present for my for my own child. When I'm not able to be there for my child and be present for her or show up the way I want to, it's because my own child needs something. 
And so that's a moment to pause. And that's how it gets to be framed in love rather than loss. Okay, sometimes I need to pause. Sometimes I need to go inward and that's okay. I need to tend to this. I have one traumatized child <laughs> and I have one gorgeous living child and they are in relationship to each other. And that's a framework that helps me bring all of this knowledge into the present in real time. Yes, I definitely resonate with that in my my own life as I'm raising three children now, three very small children and juggling all the things that comes with it and keeping myself anchored in what's important um, versus, you know, the lights are on, you have food. And, um, and the more that we talk about this at Paces and on this podcast, um, the more I am very clear of root cause. And we've, we've talked about it a little bit, but root cause is colonization, white supremacy, and how it manifests in our society um, and how it permeates through all aspects of our culture to include our parenting practices. Um, and it really ties to kind of what you were talking about before, Candace, this power dynamic, right? That's how we, we've learned about power and power dynamics through colonization and subjugation and, um, and who is less powerful deserves whatever they get in society, right? And because I'm more powerful, I can do unto you whatever I, I want, or I can just ignore you, or I can not give you what I know that you need as a human being um, as at my choosing. Or um, And so this is um, very much tied to colonization. And that means that the cure is to get back to indigenous practices and that indigenous um, across the world. So indigenous practices, period. There's indigenous European practices, there are indigenous African practices, there are indigenous American practices. All of those are kind of the cure to what we're talking about. So this conversation has been has been great. Candace, thank you for coming back again. We will try to get you back in next month uh, to have a very interesting conversation about loss, historical loss, big picture loss and, and grief. And so um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That would be lovely. Please join us next week um, as we continue this conversation. Um, but on our end, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we will see you next week, same time. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.